Hello and welcome to the Life Enchanted podcast. We're on a mission to optimize our lives through faith, health, wisdom, and much more. Thank you for joining us on our journey. Here now is our host, Nick Carlisle. What is good, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Nick Carlisle here, and welcome back to another episode of the Life Enchanted podcast, where I tend to nerd out on all things faith, health, interesting, and optimizing. If you're not already following me on Instagram, at nick.carlisle, that is, go ahead and find me on there, hit that follow button, send me a DM perhaps. I am very active on the gram and would love to connect with you personally. This episode, as always, is brought to you by MyLifeEnchanted.com, which is where you can find all things related to the Life Enchanted movement. I have a free 30-page eating guide on there. I have some links to some of my favorite products. I have some hoodies and some shirts I designed. The Truth Pack is on there as well. So go check all of that out. Thanks again for tuning in. Now let's get into it. Today's guest is licensed counselor, author, speaker, blogger, podcaster, and founder of truelovedates.com, Deborah Faleda. Deborah's work has been featured all over the internet. She communicates extremely well and has just a ton of wisdom to share in regards to mental health and relationships and everything in between. She recently wrote a phenomenal book titled, Are You Really Okay? Subtitle, Getting Real About Who You Are, How You're Doing, and Why It Matters. I'm stoked for you guys to get to know her a bit and to introduce you to her mind and philosophy. So without further ado, my interview with Deborah Faleda. So I thought an interesting place for us to start would be with a drawing of yours. And this drawing, from what I understand, is a picture of a broken heart that is then pouring out into a book. So can you please explain to the listeners what life events led to this drawing? Explain the background behind it a little bit and then why now this drawing holds such significance for you. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll zoom in. Um, we'll zoom into that moment where I'm writing in my journal and I, it's funny because a lot of times I would write in my journal at different times of the day. Sometimes I would write in the journal when I felt really good because I wanted to remind myself that there were glimpses of good moments in this really dark season Um, and, and you have to remember that because when you go right back into the dark season, the darkness that can just come over you within the next hour, you want to remember that it was good earlier for just a minute, because when you're in a dark season of depression and anxiety, sometimes you forget that there was something other than the dark season. And sometimes you start believing that all that there will be forevermore is this horrible, dark season. And so I remember a time when the clouds of depression and anxiety parted for just a minute and I was journaling and I felt like this picture came to my mind of a heart. It was my heart. I had just gone through some really hard things from trauma 
almost losing my life, losing a baby, um, going through severe anxiety, panic attacks that I've never experienced before, depression. And I just felt like my heart was cracked, like trauma cracked my heart open. But then I saw this beautiful picture of like, almost like these rays pouring out of my heart and into a book. And I remember at the time thinking like, really? I mean, I don't want to write another book. I don't care. I don't, I would rather not go through this than write a book. Like, forget it. I just want to be done with what I'm experiencing right now. And I had written three books before that moment. So it's not like writing a book was something new for me. And at that moment, I just wanted the depression to be gone. I didn't care about writing a book or helping people through it. I just wanted to get out of it myself. That's how I honestly felt in that moment. But I drew that picture into my journal and um, prophetically, a few years later, I released a book called Are You Really Okay? Mm -hmm. Chronicling my journey of anxiety and depression, but also helping people navigate the, the dark, murky waters of mental and emotional struggles because I'm a licensed counselor and that's what I do. But just goes to show you that even licensed counselors aren't immune mm -hmm. to the struggles that come with mental and emotional health. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. So talk to us a little bit about the the title of the book, Are You Really Okay? Because it seems that most people will know if they're doing okay emotionally or mentally. But in the beginning of the book, you seem to, well, you do make the case and very well that a lot of people aren't even aware of what's going on or if they are okay or not. So how does one know if they are really okay? Well, if the assumption is that people will know if they're okay or not, that assumption is wrong because the truth is there's all kinds of stuff happening underneath the surface at all times. And we're not always aware of what's happening underneath the surface because we we learn to live superficially. We live in a world where everything is kind of superficial. We're focused on the here and now. And not only that, but social media has conditioned us to live superficially mm. because everything that we do, everything that we put out there on social media is like this snippet of our picture perfect life. It's these curated images and posts. Even when we're being quote unquote authentic on social media, it's curated, it's edited. Like we decide how authentic we want to be, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so we're kind of conditioned to live on the superficial level. And I think a lot of us assume that we're doing much better than we are. In fact, you've probably noticed that when you open the book, the first sentence is, you're not as healthy as you think you are. Mm -hmm. And maybe that sounds mean or presumptuous. Maybe you would see it as a direct statement. But the reason I say that is because there's a study in psychology and sociology that we call the better than average effect. And basically, they took a bunch of people and they asked them questions to rate themselves on a scale 
how do you feel like you are in comparison to your peers in these areas? Everything from their kindness to their interactions, to their morals, to their driving skills. And the majority of people, the majority, rated themselves as better than average. Everybody thinks they're better than average. But mathematically speaking, we can't all be better than average. Like somebody's got to fall below the mean, right? Mm -hmm. But nobody thinks that's them. And so they're like, well, maybe this better than average thing is just among certain groups of people, higher socioeconomic status, people in the suburbs, you know? So they're like, let's let's do the same study, the same experiment with prisoners. Let's see what prisoners think of themselves. You know, they're bound to think that at least they're below average, right? Mm -hmm. No, the exact same results in that prisoners thought that they were all above average in compared to their non-prisoner peers. So what does that tell you? It tells you that everybody, no matter what age or stage or demographic, whether you're a pastor or a prisoner, there's a good chance you think of yourself as better than you really are. That is our human nature to sugarcoat who we are, to not, to not really dig deep. And so that's kind of where the, the title of this book is birthed out of that, that deep question with a hint of sarcasm, mind you. Like, I know I'm a therapist, but I'm not the type of therapist who's like, are you really okay? It's more a little bit sarcastic. Like, are you really? Like, really? I mean, let's get honest here. I know you think you are, but are you really? And, and my hope for this message is that it guides you into an audit an assessment, a checkup to find out how you're actually doing emotionally and spiritually and mentally and physically. Mm. Um, not how you think you're doing, but how you're actually doing when we, when we ask some of those hard questions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's dive into emotions real quick. So in regards to emotions, how, how does someone know if they are doing okay? And if you could talk about the volcano effect here, that would be awesome as well. I thought that was super helpful. Yeah. You know, we all experience a significant amount of emotions that are happening underneath the surface. Uh, whether or not we're aware of them and in tune to them is a different story. But we all experience emotions. Some people are just like, well, I'm not that emotional. But that's not actually a true statement. Like we all have emotions. What's a more accurate statement is to say, I'm not aware of my emotions, or I'm not in tune to my emotions, or I repress my emotions. But to say I'm not that emotional is not actually a true statement. And so when we look at our emotions, emotional health is really the ability to acknowledge your emotions, the ability to understand and express them in a healthy way. And then the ability to question your emotions and make sure that they're accurate, make sure that they're not misguided. I, I talk about emotional health kind of like a volcano, like we've all got this emotional pressure building underneath the surface, just like a volcano. And the thing is, if left alone, that pressure is going to start to build and build and build until all of a sudden it gets so intense that it finds the point of least resistance and comes to the surface in an emotional explosion. And that emotional explosion looks different for different people. Some people call it burnout. 
Other people call it anxiety or depression or withdrawal. Maybe it comes in the form of irritation or anger or rage. Maybe it comes out in the form of relationship problems, marriage struggles, addictions. But the idea is that if we don't address those underlying emotions that are building up in a healthy way, they will make their way to the surface where we lose control. And so being a healthy person means digging a little deeper and identifying some of those things. Mm -hmm. How does it, how does an emotion differ from a feeling? Well, honestly, the term is interchangeable. Uh, They're really one and the same. What you feel is, is your emotion. Emotion is the noun you know, but, but really it's, it's uh, what you feel is the verb, a feeling. I feel blank. Mm -hmm. Emotion is the noun What you feel is the verb, but they're all referring to the same thing. You know, these, these signals that are happening underneath the surface, these signals that are sending messages to your brain to get you to try and respond in a certain way. That's what emotions are. They're signals to the brain that that really motivate us to respond. And ignoring those signals is literally just ignoring um, our body's mechanism to get us to respond appropriately. But sometimes we don't want to feel. It's like, oh, that's uncomfortable. I don't want to feel that. So instead of deal with it and respond appropriately, we just kind of ignore it. Mm. So the key is for us to feel them, let them come about, address them, acknowledge them. Is that what we need to do? Yeah, that's the first step is really learning to acknowledge what we feel. When people come into my counseling office and I ask them how they're feeling about something or what emotional response something is triggering, a lot of times the most common answer is, I don't know. I don't know. And it's not that you don't know. It's just that maybe you don't have words to identify. You don't have a vocabulary to name those things. And I mean, the truth is there are hundreds of emotions out there, but in Are You Really Okay? I talk about some of the primary ones because learning to to put name, a name to how you feel, acknowledge it is one of the first steps towards being able to deal with that signal. What is the signal in the first place? Let me identify it. Is it stress? Is it overwhelm? Is it frustration? Is it insecurity, disappointment, feelings of rejection? Like what is actually happening underneath the surface? And when I can begin to put a word to it and understand what the signal is, then I can start to deal with it in a healthy way. Mm, Yeah, that's good. All right, quick pause, my friends. I want to tell you quickly about my new favorite clothing brand, Viore. I personally love clothes and am very particular about what I choose to wear. And athleisure tends to be my go-to style, meaning comfortable, premium, well-made, versatile clothes I can work out in or swim in, hike in, lounge in, dress up to go to church, and even wear to work. And Viore clothing, believe it or not, my friends, checks all of those boxes legitimately for guys and for girls. Their stuff is just super dope. It's well-made, athletic 
cut, it's versatile, and it is clutch. My two favorite products right now are their core shorts, which I have numerous pairs of and pretty much wear daily during the spring and summer, and their Tuvalu tee, which is just basically a blank and extremely comfortable and durable cotton blend tee that fits me perfectly. It's like the most perfect fitting shirt I've ever tried on, and I legitimately can't get enough of it. I, I was thinking yesterday about ordering seven of them in the salt color so I could just wear them every day of the week and never wear anything else again in my life. But for listeners of Life Enchanted, Viore is kind enough to offer 20% off, which is not a small amount, 20% off your entire order if you go to vioriclothing.com slash enchanted. That's V-U-O-R-I clothing.com slash enchanted. Again, I highly recommend their products. I don't put my name behind just anything. I vetted out their products personally, and their stuff is way legit. So one more time for you, 20% off if you go to vioriclothing.com slash enchanted. I'll put the link in the show notes as well. Now back to the podcast. All right, let's transition to panic attacks, which is something else that that you address and that you're familiar with and that, unfortunately, I am familiar with as well. I've had quite a few of them, and quite frankly, they suck. They're not fun. Mm-hmm. They're terrible. And yeah, a lot of what I do is to prevent them from happening as far as like my diet and my sleep and my supplements and all that stuff. So for the listeners, can you please just explain what a panic attack is? Yeah. So, so psychologically speaking, a panic attack is when your body false alarms like that. That's how we can describe it in simple terms. There is a part of your brain called the amygdala and the amygdala is responsible for emotional memory and emotional response. So what happens is sometimes the amygdala responds in an appropriate way. Let's say, let's say a car is coming straight at you. Your, your amygdala response, we sometimes also call it the fight or flight response is to like, get out there, protect yourself, run, like get away from the street. A car is coming and you find that emotional reaction is occurring long before your brain logical part, which is called your cortex, long before your cortex is like, oh, look, a car is coming at approximately 70 miles per hour. I should get out of the way. Like your brain isn't even working as far as your cortex goes. What is working is your amygdala that makes you jump out of the way instantly before you've had time to even process what happened, right? That's what a panic attack is. But unfortunately, it's an overreaction. It's a false alarm to a situation. Your body is telling you to run when there's actually nothing to run from in the moment. Usually a panic attack is triggered by an experience from the past or a fear of the future. It's something that's not happening in the present that's causing your body to overreact. In many cases, a panic attack is rooted in past trauma. So the roots are traced back to something that your body experienced before. And now when something similar comes up, your amygdala is like, "Uh uh-oh, I recognize these feelings. This must be dangerous. And, And all of a sudden you go back into that fight or flight response, whether or not it's accurate for the moment. How can we combat against those or prevent them or get them to subside if we are in the midst of one? 
Well, the simple answer is counseling. (laughs) (laughs) That's where you learn to identify the root, the trigger. Everyone's root and triggers look different. Mm -hmm. For me, the triggers of my panic attack was a past trauma where I literally almost lost my life. I was, I, I went in for a routine appointment. I found out I was having a miscarriage and then I started hemorrhaging, which meant I was losing more blood than was healthy. I mean, I literally almost lost so much blood that I was minutes away from dying. They had to rush me to emergency surgery. I remember feeling lightheaded, but like, like what is happening? It happened so quickly. My body didn't have time to respond. And sometimes when you're in the middle of a trauma, when your body is in survival mode, you're, you're not capable of processing what's happening. It's kind of like when a soldier goes off to war, when they're in the middle of the battlefield, the trauma is so intense and real that they don't have time to process it. Like all they have time to do is survive and deal with it in the moment, just, just stay alive. But when they come back and life is safe and secure, that's when the trauma reemerges. It's like, okay, you've, you've got to deal with me now. Like there's some trauma here. And so for me, a few years after that trauma, when life was safe and secure, I was with the kids in the kitchen or I was on a safari bus is one of the things I talk about and are you really okay? And I started feeling a little bit off physically. Once it happened when I was in the kitchen with the kids, I started feeling a little bit off physically. Maybe it's because I didn't drink enough water that day or I was getting a headache. Or, But my, my amygdala was like, uh-oh, you have felt off before. And last time you were almost dead. This must be dangerous. And all of a sudden, my body goes into fight or flight mode without me even realizing what was happening. What's happening is that my amygdala is remembering something that I don't even consciously remember. And it's telling me, you need to be, you need to get to a safe place. You're in danger. You need to run. You need to protect yourself. It's a false alarm. And everybody has a different root. Everybody's panic attacks are rooted in something completely different. So I can't tell you how to deal with your panic attack until I can help you get to the root of where they come from. What's causing them? Is it a trauma from the past? Is it past abuse? Is it feelings of being out of control that you've experienced in your past? Is it a a, a physical illness? Like what is the root of the trauma that's causing this reaction? And, And when we can get to that root, it can really help us begin to unpack that amygdala response and get ourselves to a healthier place. Mm-hmm. Can one just think positive thoughts in the middle of a panic attack and it deactivates that amygdala or in the midst of one, are there some practical things that, that we can do to help shut that fight or flight off? Well, remember we talked about how the amygdala works faster than the cortex, right? So that's that's a beautiful response because when you're in the middle of the street and a truck is coming, you want to be able to run before you have time to think about it. But when you're in the middle of a panic attack, your amygdala is working faster than your cortex. So to try and talk yourself through it and say, oh, this is just a panic attack. I'm fine. I'm not really dying. It's not going to be as effective because your cortex is way slower than your amygdala. So in the beginning, When you're first dealing with panic attacks, I always encourage people to deal with physical symptoms by countering them 
with the opposite physical symptom. So when you're hyperventilating in a panic attack, the opposite symptom is deep breaths because it slows down your breathing. You know, when, when you're feeling like you're going to pass out, the opposite symptom is to lay down and relax. You know, like whatever you feel is happening in your body, you want to kind of counter with an opposite physical reaction. Maybe that means you get a cold drink. Maybe it means you sit down. Maybe it means you put your head down and, and relax, deep breathing. And once your body gets to a baseline place again, well, that's when you be, can begin to counter the panic attack with logic, mm. you know. But yeah. in the middle of it, that logic isn't going to do much for you. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I've tried. I've tried. <laughs> because yeah. it's a, like you said, it's a, it's the amygdala and it's the sympathetic response. And right. the only way to deal with that is to activate a parasympathetic response. And like you said, deep breathing is is huge for that, especially longer exhales. Longer exhales have been shown to, to decrease heart rate and you know, doing belly breathing, sucking the breath in all the way to your belly button. And something that is fascinating that I just learned about yesterday, actually, that a scientist from Stanford pointed out is that vision has just as a profound of impact on parasympathetic, parasympathetic activity as the breath. And because when you are in that sympathetic fight or flight state, what happens is your, uh, your, eyes do they constrict yeah they constrict and you're you get tunnel vision you're looking at one object right. but if you're right. able to bring awareness to your surrounding and through your vision see like a, a panorama around you uh -huh. it kind of tells your body's chemistry like hey there isn't a truck coming at me full right. steam you're right okay. now yeah you're okay you're able to relax you're able to acknowledge the green colors over there to your left in the sky over there you know up there and the people moving over there which i thought was super cool and i've tried it a couple times since yesterday just in my day-to-day -day, and it it seems to work well so that was actually really cool because sometimes when you're in the middle of a panic attack, you almost feel like an out-of-body experience, you know? And so what, what that research is pointing to is really what a lot of people will tell you to do in the midst of a panic attack. Another physical way to counter it is by calling things out, like sometimes even out loud, there's a tree. There's a desk. There's, a, there's my wife wearing a red shirt. There's like saying out loud, kind of grounding yourself in the things that are around you and bringing your awareness to your what you're sensing around you to kind of slow down what's happening in your brain. Um, and, and it can be helpful. So the key is those short-term immediate responses are really helpful. But the problem is too many people use those short-term in-the-moment treatment as though that's lifelong treatment. Mm -hmm. We're still not getting to the root. Like just being able to navigate every time a panic attack comes is a good first step. But then the next step is, why are these coming in the first place? Mm -hmm. How can I get to the root of this? How can I begin to pull at the root and not just snip it at the surface? It's such an important skill to be able to de-escalate when a panic attack comes, but it's not enough to just learn to de-escalate if you're not learning to get to the root and really doing the work of counseling, mm -hmm. the work of 
really digging deep and figuring out what my triggers are and, and how do I get to a healthier place so that these things don't happen on a regular basis. Yeah. And is, is that just a lot of thought work and a lot of perspective change from someone who's a professional that can really uncover things and ask tough questions and enable to you to articulate things that maybe you, you wouldn't have been able to without their help? Is that really what it comes down to? Just kind of some ahas and some... Absolutely. It's yeah. a lot of digging. It's like, it's like archaeology plus putting this like elaborate puzzle together. I mean, you're doing so much digging to figure out what are the things that have informed my amygdala response over the years. What are the things that have contributed to it? And 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 what are the things that I believe that have contributed to it? What are the experiences that I've had that have gotten me to this point and the stress that I'm carrying that has really hijacked my serotonin and dopamine. Like what, what do I need to do to get back to a a baseline healthy place and then stay there? Yeah. So I'd love to switch gears to anxiety a bit on a, on a related note and specifically with Christians dealing with anxiety, because I know you are super strong in your faith as am I. So how do you go about counseling Christians who are struggling with anxiety? And I know that's very general there, but just talk to us about kind of how you approach that. Yeah, honestly, the same way I approach people who aren't Christians, because it's like, I guess to me as a therapist, to me, how I hear that question, and I know you're asking for the general audience. So so to me, how I hear that question is like a doctor would hear, how do you handle cholesterol issues for Christians versus non-Christians, right? Like to me, it's one and the same, like we handle it the same way. But maybe for a believer, we will also integrate spiritual perspectives and spiritual truths of who God is, our identity in Christ. Like we'll try to fill in some of the blanks with that additional layer of our spiritual life. But to me, anxiety is is if anxiety is the illness or the struggle, I'm going to handle it with the same exercises, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. Um, but, but really then what do I, what, what is the scaffolding? The, the additional things that we're going to work on are your spiritual health as a believer, because in my opinion, they all kind of work together for our healing. And for me, just focusing on my amygdala response was so helpful. But as a believer, it was also helpful for me to see a deeper layer, to see what God was doing and to see God at work in my life. So so really, I'm going to address it the same way. But, but when you're a believer, you almost get more, you know, you get you get more because of your relationship with Christ. It's just another layer to the healing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because... At the end of the day, anxiety is fear, from what I understand. And if you don't have a faith, then you don't necessarily know. You don't have something to lean on, something solid to lean on that you are going to be okay and that there's provision for you, right? Yes. Yes and no. Um, let me put it this way. When your body is truly hijacked by an anxiety response, Sometimes it's rooted in fear and a lack of knowledge of who God is. And and there's some perspective changes that need to happen. 
But sometimes you can have all of that in line and still have an anxious response because of past trauma or because of hormone imbalances. I'm working with somebody currently who is literally just having an anxiety response with everything and anything in her life because of a postpartum hormone imbalance that's causing her body to false alarm. And so even equipped with all of God's truth, she's still having these response, this, this, this overwhelming anxious response. At the end of the day, she actually just needs some medication. You know what I'm saying? Like uh, I was in a season where I literally just needed some medication to turn down my anxiety response so that I could even absorb God's truth, you know? And so in some ways, this it's a tricky conversation because it's like multi-layered. There's so many prongs. For some people, it's all of the above. It's a, it's a little spiritual adjustment, a little mental adjustment, emotional adjustment, physical adjustment to get yourself to a better place. For other people, it literally is a physical, like, I just need to change my hormones and, 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 and I will be at a better place. So it's, it's one of those things where an assessment really requires a personal look into somebody's life and what are the many components that are contributing to their anxious response. Yeah. So talk to us about how you approach that, like the whole SSRIs versus CBT debate. If someone comes yeah. in and they're experiencing high-level anxiety or depression, how do you kind of figure out whether or not they need to be on Lexapro or if they just need to do some deep thought work? Well, really, it, it comes down to the severity of the depression and anxiety. Mm. Um, mild to moderate depression and anxiety can really benefit from a focused time of therapy. Um, because as you change your thoughts, it changes your feelings. And as you change your feelings, it actually changes your chemicals inside your body. The less stress you have, the better your body absorbs serotonin and dopamine. Like all of these things kind of work together. So even just by working on reframing my mental space, changing my lifestyle, I can begin to change what's happening underneath the surface chemically. But when it comes to moderate to severe depression, at that point, your body is so past the point of no return that no matter what you do mentally, it might not impact you physically. Because like, like I said earlier, when you're in the middle of a panic attack, you can't actually think logically. Like how can you change your perspective when your brain's not actually working properly? I almost see it like, like how some people see like diabetes type one versus type two. You know what I'm saying? In type 1 diabetes, your insulin is not working. Your body is not creating insulin and you need insulin. Type 2 diabetes, their body is creating insulin but not enough. And so in some type 2 diabetics, they can they can do lifestyle changes to control their insulin levels, you know? So so this is kind of how I view anxiety and depression. Is it mild to moderate or is it moderate to severe? When it's moderate to severe and you're really having a hard time getting through life, your activities of daily living. You're having a hard time getting out of bed, showering, going to work, like you're crying all the time. You feel 
paralyzed. You can't do your job. You're not enjoying life. You, you're, you have no appetite. You can't sleep. When they start affecting your daily living in that way, that's when I would really consider an SSRI as part of your treatment plan. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. I love that diabetes analogy. That's that's spot on. Love that. And have you seen people go on SSRIs for a short period of time, get the benefit from it, do some thought work, and then get off the SSRIs and then remain stable? Or is that if you... If you do go on SSRIs from your experience, do you see that as something that people are usually on for their entire life or how, how do you view that or how, what have you seen there? Yeah, I think originally SSRIs were not necessarily meant to be lifelong. Um, I think the ideal use of SSRIs are, I'm going to use this for a season until I figure out what's going on and get to baseline and get myself to a healthier place. Maybe I need to change my diet. Maybe I need to exercise more to increase my serotonin and dopamine intake and, and absorption. And, 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 and so there's going to be lifestyle changes. There's going to be thought changes. There's going to be emotional changes, relational changes as you're moving to a healthy place. So in some cases, people are on an SSRI for six months to a year, they get to a better place and they move on. In other situations, I've seen women, for example, who have to be on an SSRI depending on their cycle. So for some women are on an SSRI seven days out of the month because they have serious mental health struggles with their cycle. Mm. For other people, it's going to be a lifelong thing because they have a chemical imbalance that they literally cannot be off of an antidepressant. So every case looks a little different. And I think that's the beauty is of working with a counselor and a, and a physician, mm-hmm. a psychiatrist or a family doctor that's really uh, familiar with the the world of anti-anxiety and antidepressants to kind of help guide you of what you specifically need. Um, because each person looks completely different in, in what, how they're going to respond and what they need and what works for them and what doesn't. And, and so, but, but the beauty is to know that there are options and that you don't have to live with depression and anxiety forever. Like mm-hmm. there is hope that this can be alleviated in your life. Yes. Yes. Agreed. Well said. Thank you. So I'd love, we don't have a ton of time left and I'd love to get to physical health because I'm all about that life. And I think it's super important and probably the first thing that should be addressed when someone is experiencing a lot of these things, in my opinion. But talk to us about physical health and the importance of sleep and exercise and nutrition. And then secondly, I'd love if you could share some things that perhaps surprised you when you were doing the research to write this book or things that you know, really uh, shocked you as far as like their importance or any data or anything like that. Yeah. I I first have to comment. I love that physical is your go-to. I would say my go-to is emotional. Like let's, you know, I think everybody kind of has the area that they feel more passionate about tackling first, but the key is this is holistic. If we look at this journey, kind of like a circle, a cycle. If I start at physical, I'm going to get back to physical, but I have to circle through emotional, mental, and spiritual. If I started emotional, I'm going to get back to emotional, but I have to cycle through mental, spiritual, and physical. Like the key is 
really taking the time to do a full audit, a full inventory of how healthy we are in all of these areas. Because if one wheel is a little bit off, it's going to affect the rest. So physical health um, is definitely one piece to the pie that I do think gets neglected in Christian circles in the sense of like, we're so focused on the spiritual sometimes, you know? Um, but, but uh, the, 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 the key components here that we'll briefly talk about are diet, exercise, and sleep. Those things have a tremendous impact. I think my favorite uh, statistic was seeing uh, research where people were given the task of walking a certain amount of day. I believe it was like half an hour a day people who had clinical depression versus the control group who did not do any walking exercise during the day. And the people who had clinical depression and walked showed a significant decrease in their depression for up to a year compared to the control group where they did not walk. And it just goes to show you that a little extra exercise per day can influence your dopamine and serotonin levels. And can actually help you long-term when it comes to your mental health. So for some people, when they don't exercise, they feel a difference, you know? Um, And diet, of course, the, the things we eat impact us. How much we sleep impacts us. The other thing I talk about in the physical health chapter that people don't always think about is the boundaries that we set around our life. Because those are the things that protect our physical health being able to say no, being able to set boundaries and limits and not just doing everything, going, going, going until we're burnt out. So there's a host of things for us to really consider when we're looking at like a healthy lifestyle in general. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we could, we could spend a lot of time here. But yeah, it's, it's just so important, especially sleep. I think sleep is perhaps the most undervalued component of that and people kind of it's it's almost like a bragging thing as well that people do like oh I only slept four hours last night I'm like dude that sucks you know like know. that's terrible totally it's so unhealthy <laughs> yeah, it and 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 you don't feel it until all of a sudden like it impacts everything it starts messing with how you handle your emotions it starts messing with your response to life I mean yes Another thing to to be on the lookout for, if you can't sleep day in, day out, you're struggling with insomnia for a season of time, like that could be indicative of something deeper like anxiety that's not been addressed or depression that's not been addressed because they usually kind of work together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then people are reaching for stimulants and the stimulants, you know, it's, it's just a self-perpetuating cycle of the stimulants preventing the sleep and then the sleep, exactly. the poor sleep, they're groggy, they may need more stimulants and yeah, everything's out of whack. It's, it's just so important. Another study that I recently saw that I think is worth mentioning here in regards to diet was a study done with prisoners and ADHD students. And it was super fascinating. They gave a group of prisoners a multivitamin and fish oil pill and subsequently saw rates of incidents and misbehavior go down by 60% with just a multivitamin and a fish oil pill, which is super interesting. And then Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. And then the same thing happened with the group of students with ADHD. It was a multivitamin and a fish oil pill and their 
symptoms of the ADHD went down. I can't remember the exact number there, but it was significant, very significant. So it's like, man, if you're eating a whole foods diet and if you're getting in all the nutrients that your body needs and making sure your macros are good and all that and so that your body and your brain can fire on all cylinders so that your brain can produce those chemicals, you know, it's it's just so important. It is. It's a huge part to the the holistic view of health. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, agreed. Okay, so just two more questions for you, Deborah, that get asked to everyone on the podcast. The first one being, if you could recommend a few books for the listeners to check out from any genre, they don't have to be related to what we've talked about here, but totally can be. What would those books be and why? Um, I love the book called Rewiring Your Anxious Brain. Mm. Um, because that kind of talks a little bit more about the amygdala response. And especially if you're in the middle of kind of struggling with panic attacks, I think that's a really good deep dive book. Um, the other one that I would recommend when we talk about uh, meditation and mindfulness, responding to panic with 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 mindfulness and meditation um, it's called Holy Noticing. It's a faith-based approach to mindfulness that I think can be really helpful as well. Sweet. Awesome. Thank you. And then last question that gets asked to everyone, what does a life enchanted mean to you? You know, I think when you have walked through really hard seasons, you open your eyes to the beauty and gift and magic of the day-to-day life. Like just being able to be outside and watch your kids play or work on a book or drink a cup of coffee and not feel depressed, not feel anxious, not feel all of those dark things. To me, that is the best gift. That is life enchanted because when you've been through this storm, just a regular day with the sunshine just completely changes in value for you. And I feel like that's kind of a big lesson that I've learned is like just a, a, a stress-free day is such a gift. And so I've really been learning to kind of soak that in. And it's not about achieving. It's not about the next thing. It's not about the next project or, or social media or the platform. It's just about enjoying what God has given me right before my eyes. And so I'm so grateful for that. Amen. Thank you. And I will put all things uh, Deborah Faleda in the show notes. So a link to your book, a link to your website, link to your Instagram, all that. Deborah, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, guys. Later. A special thanks to King's Kaleidoscope for the music heard throughout this episode. Also, a big shout out to Capital Floats, aka my favorite sensory deprivation and float tank facility in Northern California. I'm a frequent user there, and the experience is always transformative to say the least. If you're interested in floating and live in Northern Cal, make sure you use promo code LIFEENCHANTED with no spaces at checkout on their website. You'll save a whopping 40% off your first float, and you will not find that deal anywhere else. Also, in regards to some of the content shared in these episodes, make sure you always consult your doctor before making any sudden diet or lifestyle changes. If you're interested in connecting with me, you can find me on Instagram at nick.carlisle or send me an email nick at mylifeenchanted.com. 